Welcome to the I Want to Know podcast. I am Josh Spector, and I am your host. If you don't know who I am, I'm the creator of the For the Interested newsletter, which you can check out at fortheinterested.com. If you're new here, this podcast exists for a simple reason, to help creative entrepreneurs get their questions answered. Here's how it usually works. In each episode, a different guest comes on, asks me three questions. We have a 10-minute conversation about each of them, try to give you a lot of actionable tips and strategies you can use to grow your audience and business. And that's it. No fluff. Get right into it and get you back out actually doing stuff that matters to move your audience and business forward. Today's episode is going to be slightly different because we're going to flip the script. Instead of someone coming on and asking me questions, I have brought on a special guest whose expertise I desperately want to learn from and have learned a lot from. And I'm going to ask him the three questions. Today, my guest will be Roberto Blake. Roberto is a creative entrepreneur with more than 500,000 subscribers on YouTube and the best-selling author of Create Something Awesome, How Creators Are Profiting from Their Passion in the Creator Economy. He has a background in design and advertising and transitioned from being a full-time freelancer to a content creator with a six-figure brand and business. His mission is to help 100,000 creators start monetizing their content and build a full-time income. I have been a huge fan of Roberto's, even though this is the first time that we're actually speaking. We have connected on Twitter. He has an awesome YouTube channel that is full of tips and advice for creators in particular, especially on YouTube. I cannot wait to learn a lot from him. Roberto, welcome to the show. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for having me, Josh. I'm happy to be here. So I, it's funny because as I was trying to figure out what do I want to ask you, because I am actually kind of the perfect audience for my own podcast today because I have done nothing with video at all, nothing on YouTube until about four months ago when I launched this podcast. And when I launched, I started, you know, I'm doing video for all these episodes. I started putting them on YouTube. And initially I was like, I know that this is a whole rabbit hole and there's a million things to do. So let's just get the stuff up there and then I'll fine tune it and sort of learn as I go. Because I was like, if I spend time trying to figure this out, I'm going to take months before I even put stuff up there. Let's just go. So there's a million things and tips and stuff that I and others can get from you. But so I thought that this would be a good place to, to start. The first thing I want to know from you is I'd love to get your single best tip across five what I think are key elements to YouTube videos that everyone sort of has to figure out. So we'll take them one at a time. So let's start with video titles. What's your single best tip for video titles? Single best tip for video titles is be clear instead of clever. I say that all the time. I like that. Yeah. Why is that? The average American has a third grade reading level, unfortunately, so that, that's a big deal. The other thing is that when you try to be clever, you can miss the mark. It can be confusing and you can alienate people, disregard them, or they just disqualify themselves by saying, I guess that's not for me because it's not clear that it is for me or, oh, that's not what I want. It's not obvious that's what I want. So I'm going to move on to what I actually want. If you're not clear, somebody else will be, and they will be able to capture attention probably a little bit easier than you because we avoid confusion. We avoid confusion. When something is clearly for us, we're like, yes, thank you. Let's go. Let's, all right, now let me see how good it is. Let me give it a chance. Oh, you say that's for me? Let me find out if that's true. But if something is like not obvious that's for you, you avoid it. So the thing is, videos are the same. If videos are going to attract people, it needs to be obvious that it's for them. It needs to be obvious what the value is. 
And do you think that applies? Obviously, it's easy to see how that can apply to search and people that are looking for something specific. But do you think that also applies to people that are maybe subscribers of a channel or, or do you think that people should ignore the concept? People should ignore the concept of, of the idea that videos reach subscribers. Videos reach who they reach. The subscribers are not your audience. The subscribers, they should rebrand the subscriber button on YouTube to say supporter because it would be theoretically more accurate because just because you support somebody doesn't mean you show up for them all the time. It'd be nice if you did, but that's more accurate. Mm -hmm. That's more accurate. YouTube isn't putting a video in front of me just because I subscribe to somebody. YouTube will put a video in front of me based on my behavior and what YouTube believes that I'm interested in today, not what I cared about a year ago. And the thing is you could subscribe to somebody because they were there for you at a phase in your life where you needed what they offered. And if they did their job, you may not be with them five years later. Because they've so done do their you job. Think along, along those lines, do you think subscribers are overrated? In terms I of an massively think they are, but I understand why they are. They're overrated after 10,000. They're overrated after 10,000. 90% of YouTubers don't have 10,000 subscribers even. More than 90% aren't in the YouTube partner program and monetized. So subscribers are overrated after you get 10,000 of them because most people don't realize that if you got 10,000 of them, you're in the bottom of the top 10% of all content creators on the platform. It doesn't even matter what your niche is at that point either. It doesn't even matter. That's just aggregate. But when you the say the bottom, bottom, meaning meaning once you're over 10,000, bottom of the top, you're now. already in the top echelon. You're at the bottom of that top echelon. Gotcha. Look, being at the bottom of being at the bottom of Mount Olympus is still being on Mount Olympus. At your bottom of the pantheon, but you're there. <laughs> like, but you so, think until you get to ten thousand, an emphasis on subscribers is actually worth. The only focus. because features are gate kept, but the most of what you need you get if you get to a thousand subscribers and four thousand hours of watch time and get monetized on YouTube, you would get access to almost all the features. The only features or things that you get disqualified from. There's a few of them, but once you mm -hmm. have ten thousand subscribers, there's no gatekeeping on features. So because features are gate kept, I allow some emphasis on 1,000 to 10,000. But beyond that, now we're getting into status, vanity, and things. From a technical standpoint, you're not advantaged. It's psychology after that. Obviously, there's some psychology to a subsection of viewers of how important mm -hmm. you are based on your subscriber count. However, what trumps that? If you're a millionaire, but you have 20,000 subscribers, is someone more valid than you if they have a million subscribers, but right. they're broke? It's, is somebody who has 30,000 subscribers, but has expertise because they're a PhD in a field where a PhD would matter, not just in general, but in one that would matter versus somebody who's their junior, but has a, but is more popular, more charismatic or more attractive. They're not necessarily a better person to watch, but they are better at getting people to watch. You explain when you referenced features, what you mean by features. Primary example would be that if you have a thousand subscribers and are monetized, you obviously unlock monetization features in YouTube, but that includes access to things like the merch shelf, for example, shopping, the ability to sell physical and digital products, items, and merchandise in YouTube, you that's unlocked by subscribers, but also by monetization with watch time. And so you are, don't mean being editorially featured. You mean features like tools, like utility. monetization and that kind of stuff. Yes, utility. Gotcha. The utilities. So you have cool. to qualify through what you could argue is a vetting process done by, you could argue that crowdsourced vetting, if you will, to say that, okay, this person has genuine support. 
they can be trusted with the access to these utilities and mm. tools. And they are going to be someone who are not necessarily going to damage our reputation with advertisers as a company. Right. So it's a way of the community itself is a way of vetting someone. So right. it's and getting a certain level of credibility. Correct. To get to that, to get to that. Point. To give oh. you those utilities. Exactly. The next element I want to talk about that I know everyone has to figure out and tries to think about is thumbnails. What would you say? And again, I know that's a whole rabbit hole we can go down. But if you had to give one sort of single best tip about thumbnails, what would it be? Don't make them an afterthought. No more lazy thumbnails. Thumbnails are dressing for the job you want. If you want to be someone's favorite YouTuber, if you want somebody, if you want to be somebody with 100,000 subscribers one day, dress your thumbnails up as if you want that job. Then don't come as you are. If you're going to do thumbnails, don't come as you are. Dress for the job you want. If you want a silver play button, you want a YouTube trophy, you want a silver play button, like the one that I've got back there somewhere. The answer to that is you dress for the job you want, and that dress is your thumbnails. So if your thumbnails are not coming correct and they're not to the caliber of a person in your niche with 100,000 or a million subscribers, it's okay if that's not where you are today, but every single day, you should be working toward being able to compete at that level because then don't complain about where you are otherwise. And let me ask you, you see a lot of thumbnails that look the same, right? That look roughly the same, right? It's a couple of big words of text. It's the person's face. It's whatever. Is, is anybody innovating is a, movie posts? Is anyone innovating movie right, posts? Right, but that's what I mean. I guess that's where I'm going. And this might be a false assumption I'm making, but is it, there's a reason everyone's doing that way and that's what works and you should do it that way? Or to the, are there other ways the, that can be to just the extent, successful? To the extent that me and my contemporaries don't always make our thumbnails the same. I'll give you a prime example. You've seen my thumbnails lately. Maybe in edits, you can actually pop some on the screen that demonstrate what I'm saying. Yeah. Out of all the YouTube educators, do you see the rest of them like posing with physical props in the sense of has anyone other than me turned the YouTube play button into a physical prop that they're like holding? Whether it's my silver subscriber play button trophy, some people are doing that. But I've taken the actual YouTube logo and turned it into, in my thumbnail, something that I'm holding in my hand, or I'm taking mm -hmm. my analytics and I'm holding a graph or a data chart in my hand. Almost none of my contemporaries, my friends, my peers are doing that. Making mm -hmm. my thumbnails unique by using my skills in graphic design, digital art, right. photo manipulation. I bring a lot of that to the table. Some of them have started stepping up their thumbnails a while back because before that, I was the main one using lighting effects in my thumbnails per se and stuff like that. And I was doing customized photo shoots. We Before we all used to just, all right, throw up ourselves with a face and text and call it a day. But like, I, I go out of my way to do custom photo shoots. Custom photo shoots can make your thing unique in that sense. Or, and you can find weird things to do like I do with Photoshop. However, there are things that make sense to do. For one thing, uh, figuring out color combinations. My cheat code is, all right, pick a sports team. They've already done all the market research on color right, combination. Right. Pick a sports team. So you just, that's one thing. Also, depth of field, you may have noticed that, okay, we cut ourselves out of the backgrounds, we use drop shadows, that's depth of field that we're creating, foreground, background, middle ground, we're using that. Those are just standard design techniques. Mm -hmm. So what when you see all these things in YouTube and say, oh, I guess it's working, it's, yeah, it's working YouTube because it's worked in billboards, it's worked in flyers, mm -hmm. it's worked in signage, it's worked in mailers, it's worked in advertising for 150 years to do some of these things because human behavior hasn't changed so much as the main thing that's changed human behavior is the smartphone. But outside of anything applicable to the smartphone or that we have screens now, which is why we all wear glasses because we all burned our eyes out. We're not blinking anymore. Aside from some of these fundamental societal paradigm shifts in human behavior, human beings haven't evolved conceptually 
in a meaningful way for hundreds of years to where our psychology is any different than it is, which means that we will always gravitate toward things like color tonality and color contrast, sharp images, eyes, human faces, emotions, mirroring what our intent mm. and our feelings are. So, for, so again, all the human psychology element is what's undervalued in YouTube and the execution of thumbnails. And what happens in where people do something poor and they're like, why isn't this working is they're inserting their own preferences and taste into something instead of prioritizing putting the audience first and more importantly, putting the audience avatar and psychology first of saying, why would this work for my audience avatar? And what about my audience avatar makes me think this is a good idea? People will not challenge themselves on that. They'll do something and say, I like it. And then wonder why it's ask someone, right. why is your thumbnail? Why is your color for your brand that they're like, oh, it's my favorite color. I'm like, okay, so it has nothing to do with anything about the psychology of your audience. It's just because it's your favorite color. Right, where they just go, yeah. oh, it looks cool. Or it's, oh, it looks cool. I wanted to do yeah. that. It's okay. I'm like, if you ask me why I do something, I'll be able to tell you what aspect of psychology that I'm hoping to leverage by doing it. How much, two quick follow-ups on thumbnails. One, I'm curious, and all of that was really interesting and, and great to know. How much time do you spend creating a thumbnail for a video? I have spent thousands upon thousands of hours in my lifetime in Photoshop. So the thing is, mm -hmm. I'm not a good gauge of how long someone Because you're spend. quick. Because I'm quick. Right. I have tools they don't have. I have hardware and software that makes things faster. I have a drawing tablet that makes some things more precise mm -hmm. than it would be on their side. I have the resources to have someone help me go down to my studio basement, help me, or I have my remote triggers and I can use the best cameras in the world to make right. custom photo shoots for myself you know, and do a hundred photos in the course of a 45 minute photo shoot that I can use and then take that. So it's an unfair, I have a, a right. multitude but the time unfair. aside, and clearly even just based on your description and answer of that, you take them very seriously and put a significant amount of effort into them. And then my other question is, do you find yourself, once you put up a video with the thumbnail, do you find yourself switching thumbnails at any point or whatever it goes up at, you stick with that? It depends. Generally speaking, I always assume my new A-B testing strategy is a concept with text, a concept without text. And sometimes depending on the topic, one will work better than the other. If people are going to A-B test, I would suggest that they consider A-B testing with text, without text with their face, without their face, unless they're mm -hmm. building a personal brand, in which case it's almost always use your face. So I would say with or without text. And then I would also consider maybe an A-B testing strategy around a certain facial expression versus a different facial expression. So, and I don't even know, does YouTube allow you to A-B test on the fly or do you have to run it for a few days and then run the other uh, one? You have, you would use a third-party tool. The best one that I use is TubeBuddy. So I would A-B test with TubeBuddy. I've been able to see results and then say, oh, there's a 14% better response on that. Yep, that's the thumbnail then. 14% 14 14 better, 14% better. So in perpetuity, so I'll do that. So TubeBuddy is what I recommend. And obviously they do sponsor a lot of my content. I'm also an affiliate with them. But from a utility standpoint, I don't necessarily know that there's a better tool. If you wanted to A-B test before choosing a thumbnail, you could use Thumblytics. Thumblytics is something you could use. I don't have an affiliate link for them or anything, but I've used them in the past. And the thing I like about them is you can get human feedback and people kind of rate the thumbnails and rank them for you. You could submit two thumbnails, cool. three thumbnails, whatever. You pay for it and you can do that before choosing and saying, okay, I'm going to put my best foot forward instead of waiting mm -hmm. till after the fact. You just have to keep in mind, though, that the people rating your thumbnails may not be the same psychology as your audience. They're a general user. Right. So if the thing right. is, if you're in a niche that matters, if you're a business person, you might be in a niche that matters. And so the other thing is like, 
niche creators will judge all YouTube advice, all YouTube help videos, and even their own content versus entertainers like, oh, what's Mr. Beast doing? Or, oh, here are this famous YouTubers. Like, they're a famous entertainer. You might as well be comparing a pro athlete to a college professor uh, and judging them against each other's. Right. They're completely different it's, game. They're yeah, right. it's ridiculous. Yeah. And the thing, the only thing they have in common is the same platform. That's the only thing they have in common. It doesn't matter. So like people need to stop doing that. But they do it because I'm like, here are the people who are the best. It's, oh, you mean that on a platform that's designed for to monopolize people's time, you mean that people making silly or goofy or funny or entertaining videos or conspiracy theories are getting more attention than the utility of any small business owner, any college professor, any trainer, any software suite expert, any productivity? Oh, say it ain't so that people would rather watch. Say it ain't, especially with the majority of the base being under 25 years old. Yeah, There's a difference. So... I just tell people with a grain of salt of this person isn't doing that. Well, that person is I'm like, okay, step back, look at your specific niche, your specific age demographic, especially if it's people over 30 and realize that what's popular on YouTube is not what's going to be popular with people in their thirties and forties. Yeah. The next element I wanted to ask you about, and we talked about subscribers a little bit before, but what would be your single best tip for calls to action, either calls to action for people to subscribe to their channel, or maybe it's a call to action to get them to join an email list or whatever it is, but call to action in general, what's your best tip for doing those? Communicate tremendous, communicate and demonstrate tremendous value, demonstrations of value and communicating that value accurately and articulately is extremely important because you're asking them to do something that largely you and they both know that you're asking for it because it is going to benefit you and they get that. So how does it benefit me proportionately? Equivalent exchange mm -hmm. here. And the thing is, when you fail to communicate or articulate that very well and make it abundantly clear because you're trying to be clever, it doesn't help and it doesn't work. So if you're going to ask someone to buy your book, you need to be able to tell them what they got out of buying the book because you get to be a bestseller. You get to make money. You get to have another book sale. You yeah. get the positive reviews in Amazon. What do they get? by investing not only in buying your book, but spending the time to actually read it. What do they get? If they subscribe to your YouTube channel, what videos are they going to be getting? And what do those videos do? And what transformation in their life does that provide? And that's a reason to subscribe. It's not about, oh, subscribe and help me reach my goal of reaching 100,000 subscribers. That's not a reason. That's not a reason, Jack. That's not a reason. But, that's not a reason, what's Barbara. Then? That's not, what's in it for me, Barbara? Yeah, There's, and it's so funny. It's the same thing I say with newsletters all the time where people are like, join my mailing list. Why? It's, yeah. it's again, very similar. No, what you'd say is you would say, if you want insights into the creator economy and you want to peek behind the curtain of what it means to be a full-time mm -hmm. content creator in this industry, then you'll definitely want to subscribe to my newsletter. I send it out every week. I don't give you any spam. And I will also have a roundup of all the important news and stories that you want to know as a creator economy insider. Boom. That's you a know what I think is interesting about the way you just did that, that I like, is I think a lot of people go subscribe to my newsletter, subscribe to my channel to get this, which is doing the same thing. But I like that you flipped it and said, if you want this, then subscribe and do this, right? That you put the value first, as opposed to the thing, the action you wanted them to take first, which is a really minor Qualifies. thing, but I think it's a smart way to present it. Psychology is about putting, I put the thing that they care about first because I'm putting them first. One, yeah. that shows that you're empathizing with their situation. Even the way I communicate, I empathize with the situation of I'm, I'm qualifying you and saying, if you want this is empathy. So I'm also demonstrating my capacity to anticipate what you might want. So then that's also very appealing. Okay. 
I'm validating what you want and I'm letting you make a choice and I'm only presenting the offer. It's up to you. So then, and so that's a really good way of doing that. You yeah. demonstrate that you understand by empathizing. Okay, I understand yeah. you. I'm now communicating in a way that's validating. Okay, fine. And now I'm making an offer, take or leave it. Yeah, no, I love that. So the next element, let's talk about your single best tip for video descriptions, which I see advice that seems all over the place from like description doesn't really matter that much to it should be super long to it should be, what's your best tip for what people should do with their video descriptions? For your audience, monetize the hell out of it. Meaning? Monetize your description. So here's the thing, far minority of people are gonna read your description, that's fine. First of all, yes, the first couple of lines of description should help someone understand what the video is. Fine and dandy. Beyond that, here's your a, a, a chance to put in things that are genuinely useful and helpful that allow you to monetize the minority of that audience that's being thoughtful enough to even look at that description in the first place. Also, if you had verbal calls to action in the video, every verbal call to action you made in that video should be fulfilled in that description so that there is a means to take action and to do that thing. So whatever you said or promised in the video, put it in the description, make it clear, make it easy to click, make it obvious and allow them to get the thing that you referenced in the video. So whatever you referenced, whatever books you mm -hmm. reviewed, whatever tools you talked about, whatever other videos you recommended, put them in the description. This is your opportunity to monetize. How important is description to search these days? So the problem with that question is this. It's more and less than everyone assumes because I will tell you this, everyone looks at YouTube and then ignores how Google utilizes YouTube. And even other YouTube educators or so-called gurus or whatever, they tell the audience what they want to hear a lot of times and that's fine. There are things YouTube tells creators that creators want to hear and say, oh, we don't emphasize when engineers and programmers say, oh, we don't care about this or it doesn't matter that much, whatever. It's not, they're not giving you a complete and clear answer. And sometimes even if they are, or they put it in a help document, it's not the full contextualization of that story because then there are things you can observe and verify that would contradict what you're being told. And one of the first things people should look at when they wanna say that SEO is dead, when they're communicating this stuff to YouTubers, what, all right, on a 100% scale, what percentage of YouTubers or aspiring YouTubers do you think are entertainment-based channels versus education-based channels? a good question. It would, wow, it's funny. This is going to be a weird answer. I would guess the majority of channels are entertainment, but I would guess the majority of views go to education. No, the majority- wrong on both counts? Not entirely. The majority of channels are entertainment. If you want to, to be generous, you could say it's 80-20 just for the sake of argument. 80% entertainment, 20% education for the sake of argument. Now, the skew of that, if you go to English speaking channels, probably close to 90-10. Gotcha. Because cultures outside the US would also prioritize education, utility right. and things a lot more than we would. So you can see how that would happen, especially only in their language, so on and so forth, right? So you can see how that would happen. The other part of that is in terms of where the majority of views go, 90, percent of all views on YouTube funnel up to the top 3% of channels. Yeah. 
Well, I that's think that was like a basic, I, think, I forget, there's some like law of whatever, I forget what it is, but that's almost sure. everywhere. But that's that, a case study that I think I want to say that came from either Harvard Business Review or Oxford Economics. I don't remember which case mm. study it is that they did on that, but but people I've talked to at YouTube have said, yeah, that's pretty accurate. So yeah. the distribution of views, but that's globally an aggregate, by the way. And so just remember also there's a disparity there in terms of English versus non-English and so on and so forth when we talk about that. And we're also talking about a hundred million channels globally. So when we say top 3%, we mean top 3 million channels globally. And you have to account to some extent for variations in language. You have to remember that the largest traffic on YouTube, more than 55% of it exists outside of America. So again, mm -hmm. people are, and oh, not just America, by the way. Oh, I forgot. Non-English, not, it's 55%, 55 to 6% of all YouTube traffic is non-English speaking countries. So again, our audience being primarily English speaking Westerners and everything like that, it's gonna be hard for them to contextualize some of this. That yeah, so just keep that in mind. Okay. I say all of that to say that when you start to think about it and you start to realize this, and we talk about search is an intentional viewer, which means that it's usually an older viewer, because mm -hmm. the majority of how younger people will spend time on the internet will be in escapism. Mm -hmm. Older people have limited time, but also have usually more income and are more thoughtful about how they spend their time and their money compared to younger people. Our audience would be a primary example of that. They're mm -hmm. thoughtful and intentional about where they put their time and what they want to get out of it. They will use YouTube much more for search than click on random incidental videos that happen to appear on the YouTube home right. More than 80% of YouTube views are driven algorithmically, non-search algorithmic mm -hmm. views. And then people go, okay, that's why I want to chase. But I'm like, but can you compete for that attention and do you even want to compete with that attention? Because if your primary market is not under 25, how useful is that to you? So they ignore search. The other thing they ignore is Google. I don't know if you've noticed this, but have you noticed that Google has been prioritizing video results in all their searches, Nor? Yeah. So when people say SEO is dead, what are they talking about? Because last time I checked, Google search traffic hasn't declined in mass numbers and you, Google is indexing YouTube content more. And then in terms of YouTube content, you may have noticed this other thing. Google is now finding answers to questions in snippets and segments of YouTube videos. Right. And the snippets and segments are part of chapters that you create in YouTube. And channel ch and video chapters in YouTube are predicated on the description is how you make those chapters. It's the description. The other thing that's contextualized is when you do a search result in Google and it pulls up a YouTube video, it boldens things in the description of the video. And the thing is, when you search for those things in Google, you can look at the keywords and tags and you can see a correlation between the results and the keywords and tags there too. So the thing that even YouTube says doesn't matter, but oh, wait, it's mattering in a Google search result when YouTube indexes, sorry, when Google YouTube indexes YouTube. Wait a minute, what's happening here? And even playlist in YouTube show up in Google search result. What are we talking about when we say SEO is dead or SEO doesn't matter or that titles, descriptions, tags, oh, don't worry about YouTube right. search. It all matters and it all depends what you're actually doing. If you're for... an entertainment channel, the reason it doesn't matter is because your audience isn't searching for right. things to watch to be entertained except for drama and news stories and stuff like that and controversial figures and conspiracy and blah, blah, blah. They're searching for that. They're searching for headlines. And yeah, anyone can take advantage of that. Sure, that's when search matters for entertainers. It matters when there's a headline or a conspiracy or a scandal. 
Because that's yeah. what gets searched by people trying to waste time. People who want to waste time, they'll search for scandals. They'll search for headlines. They'll search for celebrities and public figures and product releases and so on and so forth. So that's, so again, we're talking about people who value their time in a utility sense versus mm -hmm. people who are looking time specifically to waste as frivolously as possible. So the that intentionality, so yeah, so the intentionality of, oh, 80% of these views are algorithmically driven. Yes. And who are they targeting? You have to be thoughtful about these things when you're conceptualizing them. Yeah, no, that completely makes sense. The last of these five elements that I wanted to ask you about was channel header images. What's your single best tip for channel header image? Or, and I guess part of that is, are they even that important? Don't overthink them, mm -hmm. but done wrong, they do undermine you. And by that, I mean, it's just like your dress and appearance. You could just keep it simple and be as minimalistic as possible. It's almost impossible to go around as a guy with a clean iron shirt that fits your body appropriately, a pair of clean ironed and washed jeans and a pair of boots. It is almost impossible. Then just put on a jacket. It's almost impossible to go wrong as a man from a fashion standpoint and look like an adult if you keep it as simple as possible. And then if you try to overdo it and you try to be fancy, that's how you're going to mess up. That's a, And the thing is, but if you also do nothing and you're lazy and don't even do the bare minimum, your shirt isn't ironed. Oh, that's come on, man. Put in effort. So yeah, it, it, may, it may not make all the difference in the world, but it's still a reflection of your brand. Exactly. Everything matters. It's going to say something about it's sending a message, whether you mean to or not. How you do one thing is how you do everything. Yeah. So that's where topic, title, thumbnail description, pacing, yep. captions, no captions, header, all of it matters in the sense that how you do one thing is how you do everything. So and I would say choices, it matters. Right. You're all, it's not as simple as a binary sort of right or wrong because there's a million variables of what your goals are and what your audience is and what your whatever is, but it's being conscious about and making those choices as opposed to just doing whatever and being strategic about it as opposed to not being strategic about it. Exactly. And that's why, by the way, and it's no offense to anybody, but I keep bringing up the dynamic of over 25 versus under, over yeah. 30 versus under, because the thing is, it starkly contrasts people's intentions, expectation, mm -hmm. and what their value system is. Also, what their aesthetic consideration is, what their cultural values are. Disposable income generally can be determined by a lot of these things. And that is all reflected in choices they make about content, brands, and associations. So, if you're not taking that into consideration, you're in that category of, oh, if you try to please everybody, you please nobody. Yeah. And you have to be very thoughtful. So for me, I know that from my data, my audience is primarily people over 25 disproportionately. Mm -hmm. And that it skews mostly upward. The yeah. smallest amount of my audience is younger than that. The smallest amount of my audience is under 18. So I don't really think about it too much. It's not that they couldn't get value from my content. But the people who will in that demographic are the exception and not the rule. So I make decisions around the rule rather than the exception. It's not that I never consider yeah. the exception. I don't prioritize the exceptions. Yeah, totally makes sense. So let's, let's shift directions. We'll get into sort of the, I know that first question was five or 10 questions in one, but let's get into the sort of second good. question I had for you, which, which was if someone's launching a new YouTube channel or let's say they're new to YouTube, right? Like yeah. I was and in many ways still am. What should they do in the first month, right? There's a million things to do, a million things to think about. You only have so much time and effort and energy and resources. 
What would you say to someone who's getting started and say, here's the things you should really focus on in month one? Month one, I want them to audit first whether or not what, how much time they have, disposable time they have to commit exclusively to YouTube, to commit mm -hmm. exclusively to YouTube. To have any hope of being truly competitive, they're going to need to be able to allocate 15 to 25 hours a week to it because it becomes, if they're serious, it's going to be treating it like a part-time job. If you don't have the capacity to treat like a full-time job to be competitive against someone who does, which is what you're up against right. if you say you want to grow, if you want to grow, the people who have the subscriber counts that you want are already committing 40 hours of their week to it, if not more. Right. They may even be committing their 40 hours and their assistants 40 hours and their editors 40 hours. So you want an outcome that is resulting from 100 hours a week of effort and you have less than 25. Cool. That's yeah. rough. So first thing so is to acknowledge. Battle. Let me ask you a question though. That, first that, first things that, acknowledge. that 15 to 25 hours a week. Yeah. Is that based on an assumption that person's putting out how many videos? It's based on the assumption that person already works a nine to five job that they have to commit 40 yeah. to 50 hours of their week to. And it's yeah. based on the assumption that they reasonably only have two days off a week and still would like to sleep eight to nine hours yeah. on those days. So it's based on that. In terms of their output of videos, to be competitive, I believe you have to be able to put out one to three videos a week and not miss a week to get somewhere. And you need to do that for two or three years to get somewhere. You can accelerate your curb if it is the three, three videos, but the three videos also cannot be below the threshold of acceptable quality for your niche. And the threshold mm -hmm. of acceptable quality for your niche is not below the threshold of somebody who has 10,000 to 100,000 subscribers. Whatever their quality is, your quality better reach that at some point where you're not going to be able to convert people from viewers to subscribers. Your thumbnails better be competitive to the 10,000 to 100,000 because there ain't no point in watching you versus somebody else in your niche yeah. if that's not the case. So the thing is, you have to understand, you have to close that gap. Experience will close that gap. Experience, to some extent, maybe your resources, but more so your experience probably than anything else to get competitive there. And as for the amount of videos, the amount of videos you can or can't make is not just about the free time you have, it's about the skill level you have in production yeah. and editing. Yeah, so let me ask you, and again, there's a, this is almost impossible to answer, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. There, there's a million variables, but let's say someone's got 25 hours a week to commit to this. Right. Yep. And let's say they're going to put out two videos a week. Okay. What do you think that of that 25 hours? And again, I know it depends a lot on their skill level and what kind of videos they're making, but in a broad generalization of that 25 hours, do you think they're spending 15 hours producing videos and 10 hours on all the other Let's stuff? Make Let's okay. make another assumption. Let's make another assumption. Let's make another assumption. Let's assume yeah. that their videos are going to be eight minutes long. Okay. Let's assume their videos are going to be eight minutes long. That's a good baseline because they have a better chance of getting monetized if their videos mm -hmm. average eight minutes long. And if they can get like 30% average view duration, 30, 50% average view duration, they have a very good chance after a certain amount of videos of getting monetized within a year or two, right? So let's okay. assume that because eight videos would, eight minute videos would be a good sweet spot. Okay. It's okay. just enough. It's just enough. Let's also, do you think it's an unreasonable assumption to say that to make a competitive video that an amateur who doesn't have a lot of experience might have to spend 30 minutes to an hour per minute of that video on editing that video to make it good? Yeah, probably. So that means that they're going to put out two videos a week. They're spending a minimum of four to eight hours to edit each individual eight minute video. Mm -hmm. Would you say that for an amateur who doesn't know what they're doing, that it might take them at least one to two hours to film each of those videos? Yeah, probably. 
even to cut it down to the eight minutes of foot. Yeah. yeah. So now we're looking at six to 10 hours on each video. Would you say it's not unreasonable to say that to write a script for their videos that they're going to do in eight minutes, that they'll probably have to spend at least an hour to write an eight minute mm -hmm. video script because they're sure. an amateur? Sure. Okay. All right. So now we're up to seven to 11 hours per video. Do you think it's unreasonable for someone who has no graphic design experience to if they're not making lazy thumbnails to make competitive thumbnails, do you think an hour is probably enough time to make something good in Canva or Photoshop? It all depends what you're doing, but yeah, I think it's in the ballpark. Because they're an amateur, they're gonna come up with ideas. Some of them are gonna be good, some of them are gonna be bad. So they could spend an hour yeah. in Canva or Photoshop to just make one thumbnail yeah. that's good enough, that's passable, yeah? All right, great. So now you're looking at somewhere between, for every video that they want to make, you're looking at an investment between eight, to 12 hours per video. And that's for them to Yeah, there's your film, 25 hours, there's your 25 script, hours a week. Easy. There's your, there's yeah. that. And we've not accounted for learning YouTube analytics. We've not accounted for learning the YouTube systems. We've not accounted- For figuring out what you even want your show to be or your concept or your- Replying you know, your to ideas, any of the- your any Replying to any of the comments or we have it. So you can see exactly why people, yeah. it's like, and they're like, I've made 20 videos and I'm not, oh, oh, really? You're, you're, say it ain't so. Say it ain't. Let me ask you. So it's an undertaking that's underestimated. It's an, so like my oh, yeah, answer I'm is. Definitely. So the best thing you can do is embrace that and commit to making a hundred videos and getting better at this because at the end of a hundred video cycle, you'll know who you are. You'll know what you're about. You'll know if you even like this. And even if it's more, mm -hmm. you could say you gave it the old college try and that you have a body of work. And there's not a downside because the skill you get making a hundred videos mm -hmm. in a one to two year period the skill level that you get and that what you come out from that and the ability to have done something and what you learn about writing, scripting, performing, data, analytics, video, it's still useful and applicable to other areas of life. So it's not like it was a waste of time, truly, if you really think about it. Yeah, and you'll also learn exactly how long it really does take you to do it. And you'll learn which parts of it, if you can afford to outsource some of it, makes sense to outsource or not or any of that kind of stuff. And the what, more you uh, do it, if you get faster at it, then yeah. the results improve with the time. Because yeah. now that 25 hours is spent much better than it was. By like video 20, the 25 hours is spent better on video 20 that was on video two. So yeah, it gets better. So if a person was in month one and they were doing all the things that you just said to do, what would be one thing that you would tell them not to waste their time on in that first month? Maybe it's something they get to down the road. But be like, for month one, don't even worry about this piece. Their subscriber count and judging that and saying so-and-so started or some of the, you don't know if so-and-so bought subscribers, so it doesn't matter. And then, oh, so-and-so is here. You don't know if so-and-so has a friend in the industry or you don't know if so-and-so has a coach. You don't know if so-and-so is big in Reddit or Instagram. You have no idea. Like, you don't know if those- Just um, focus on the output and doing that and sticking yeah, with you it don't and know. getting better yeah. and not worry so much about it. Yeah. Exactly. It was like, there were, there was like a creator who was comparing themselves to someone in a niche. I'm like, I know that person and everything like that. So-and-so can do this and cannot perform you because so-and-so has 60 hours a week because their wife is rich and lets them do whatever they, yeah. <laughs> There's always, yeah, you never know what's actually going on behind the scenes. No, definitely. Right. Photographer, his wife was like loaded. He doesn't have to, he can spend 60 hours a week making YouTube videos. The last thing I wanted to ask you was, we mentioned it before, you recently published the book, Create Something Awesome. And I'm curious, based on the feedback you've gotten from people, what are the two or three bits of advice in the book or things you've talked about in the book that have most resonated with people? 
Oh, that's a good one. What a lot of people liked is the fact they said that they hadn't read a creator-based book that actually talked about the mental health realities of being a creator and the impact that has on lifestyle, the importance of some separation. Like a lot of people like to talk about work-life balance, but I'm like, we've went through the pandemic. We understand that actually what's valuable is separation. That when you have to, when sometimes when other, when there aren't boundaries in aspects of your life and partitions and things bleed over, it gets very messy and very awkward, very uncomfortable, and it can get very bad. And what people are learning is they're learning to value boundaries a lot more. And I talk about that in the book. So they really appreciated that there was some realistic advice that acknowledged that there are impacts and consequences to your mental health for being a creator and putting yourself in a position to be judged publicly, getting feedback, some of it are not always negative, the emphasis on focusing on that. And that gave realistic advice on how to address a lot of those things. So they appreciated that aspect of it because they were like, oh, every other book I read is purely technical or purely marketing or has a lot, is heavy on motivation, but not realism, doesn't acknowledge what I'm going through right now. So a lot of people basically were able to read the book and say, I feel a little bit more seen. And I feel like you actually do understand what it means for somebody who is doing this. And they like that set some reasonable expectations. Mm -hmm. So that was a big part of the feedback. The other feedback was how realistic it was about the logistics and economics of the time and money and the variables. And the fact that I say it's okay, Reasonably, someone working 40 hours a week has 15 to 25 hours tops of time freedom if they're living some kind of balanced lifestyle or some kind of yeah. healthy lifestyle. That's about as much as they got. So there's limits to what they can do and that they're judging themselves against people who have unlimited time or unlimited resources. And that frames a distortion in their mind about their performance. So what they loved was the fact that, wow, I didn't know that 90% of creators never get to 10,000. So I'm not doing as bad as I, I thought I was. Or, yeah. Oh yeah, you're right. If I had 30,000 subscribers, my audience would fill up Madison Square Garden. I didn't think of that. Why am I thinking of my, why am I internalizing my smallness when my mm. audience can fill a stadium? Like I didn't think about that, Roberto. Oh, I only have 5,000. Oh, that is the San Diego Convention Center. Oh, I didn't think of that. Like that's, uh, yeah, I wouldn't feel bad if the San Diego Convention Center showed up for me. What am I doing? There's, so it gave people realistic perspective on where they are, but also a realistic perspective on what a reasonable and attainable goal for a working class creator could look like until they're able to become a full-time creator. So that was one. The third one was acknowledging the validity of content as a service and content creation as a career and the legitimacy of it as an industry and as a profession. I'm 38. 20 years ago, being a web designer was clowned on as a joke and wasn't considered a real career or a real job, and you couldn't get a degree for it. And I'm serious. I went to community college. Even if you went to a regular four-year school 20 years ago, yeah. web designer was a joke because people 20 years ago still did not believe in the internet. I told my professor, I was like, in 10 years, every company in America will want and need a website and they won't be legitimate without it. And they clowned me publicly and called me arrogant. And I went home crying in tears. I wrote about it in the book and it's, oh, who had the last laugh about the importance and validity of websites. Now, again, these people have nothing against them, no ear will, but they were so attached to the world they came from and the fact that they spent 20, 30 years in like print design. They were teaching us newspaper layout and all this stuff that was like, mm -hmm. was like, you can teach us that. You can teach us the history and I respect where you came from. But if you don't teach us about digital, you're doing us a disservice because we won't have careers. We won't be competitive because it's the future. And it's the present and you just don't know it because you're not in the internet. I'm on the internet all day. And I, at that point, I'd been on the internet every day since I was 13 years old. So I was like, I'd had time in the trenches. I'd started coding at 13. Yeah. 
I started coding at 13. They were reluctant to learn how to use Photoshop as print designers. They like well, and romanticize. So funny. I, I can totally relate to that. I'm a little yeah. older than you, but I, so I started college in 1993. And okay. so first email address was in college. Like that's when it was first way before social media, any of that. But what was funny was in either like my freshman or sophomore year, I took the mm. introduction to computer use, whatever, like computer 101 class yep. was. And years later, like maybe a decade later, I was at my parents' house and I happened to see the textbook from that class. And I opened it up and there were, the class was split into four sections, right? It was word processing, spreadsheet, database, and I think beginning like programming and basic. But what was incredible, and again, this was like either 93 or 94, probably mm -hmm. 94, right? And what was incredible was I went to the index and the entire book, 1994, did not have the word email in it, did not have World Wide Web in it. And I was like, look, this is 94. By the time I graduate college, a couple of years later, like in 97, Internet's already Windows AOL, you've got mail. Right, like, right. The, like, the world I'm know, living a, in. 1997, right. it's that's, early that's days, my, the internet's everywhere. And so 1997, that's my time. That's, you got mail. I'm like, AOL yeah. 5.0, I'm like, yeah, that's me. Yeah, I mean, it just, but it shows you how fast this stuff changes. And look, even YouTube, it's crazy to think that YouTube started in what, 2007? No, YouTube started in 2005, Five, February 2005. Was right. acquired by Google in November of 2006 for 1.6 billion. Nearly sued into oblivion in 2007 by Viacom for that same 1.6 billion dollars. Litigated for seven years, and that's what. And it didn't become relevant to everybody until about roughly 2012. Became a household name by about 2014, 2015. But yeah, to your point, we're less, than, we're less than 20 years into this thing. Exactly. And, you and know, it to the even world. think about where it's going to be. I'm going back to even you talking about sort of content creation as a profession and all of that stuff. Yep. Even when you were talking before about, yeah, if you go make 100 videos, even if it quote unquote doesn't work, the skills that you're going to learn are going to pay off and create all sorts of other opportunities for you potentially if that's what you want to do. And exactly. I think it's that same thing, recognizing and understanding that it's not just about, oh, I'm going to quote unquote, be a YouTuber. That I'm a perfect example. Yeah. I'm not doing this to be a YouTuber, but I'm doing this because it's a channel that it's another way for me to distribute this podcast. It opens up all sorts of other things. And it's now another thing that I am learning about and figuring out and lucky enough to have people like you on to have these conversations and blow my mind and go. Holy shit. I'm guessing a lot of people that are listening to this probably have the reaction I have, which is part of me is, oh my God, this is amazing. And I'm excited. And this is really smart. And I now have like new perspective on this. And then the other part of me is, holy shit, 25 hours a week isn't even enough. This seems like a big, this is a whole thing. But, but we looked at the logistics of it and we're like, okay, yeah. I see why that's legitimate now. Cause yeah, the clarity that I did a whole article, by the way, about this on LinkedIn with those numbers and the time mm -hmm. freedom, what does it take to be a full time? You three, if people want to look, it's in my LinkedIn. See, if you if give us a link, we'll put it in the yeah. we'll put it in the show notes. Exactly, and there's more about it, obviously, Come in on. the book. But I wanted to I wanted that breakdown for people because yeah, I think that if you want to take it seriously as a career, even part time or as a side hustle, you can't not audit it. And I think people fail because there's nothing intentional about what they're doing, and they're yeah. not prioritizing the time. 
they want the same results as people who live and breathe this and treat it like a job and put in their hours and have put in thousands of hours, even just to their education. They want those results. And I think that the real disservice partly is because it's so youth dominated. It sounds like I'm sounds so bad, like I'm dumping on the 20 somethings. But the fact is that what happens is all these 20 something year old YouTubers go on to Jimmy Kimmel or go on to these interviews and they talk about how fun their job is. They play the humble, silly, goofy person and everything. And they tell everyone how lucky they are and all this nonsense. And then I go to a con they go to a conference with me where people pay $2,000 a ticket. And then all we do is sit in the back room pouring over spreadsheets. And then I realize that they have 175 IQ and that they're like right. a green genius right. and that they've been, um, they've been playing stupid and goofy and silly on television. And what they are is they're a freaking mastermind and that they really could sit down and hold their own in a room with Mark Cuban if they had to. And, and again, I'm not saying they're being disingenuous. I'm saying they're playing the role that people want them to play like everyone else, like, like everyone else. When you're at Thanksgiving, you're your, your mother's son or your father's daughter. And then when you get back into the boardroom, you're a shark. And that's how it is. And I'm fine with that. Well, people don't realize that. And they also think, oh, I've got my phone and it's so easy to shoot a quick video now and I'll just throw it up on YouTube and get famous. I say this with everything that in all social and all audience building and business for that matter, people don't realize how much strategy goes into what's behind the people and things that are successful, right? They're way more strategic than most people think. Even if the content may not appear to be strategic, there's the ones that are working, there's a lot of strategy behind. A 20 something year old kid, I think he's like 22, that I was talking to, that has 10 million or is about to hit 10 million subscribers right now, that's been doing this for four years, told me that he measured the words per second and per minute that the biggest YouTubers were saying in their intros and got it down to that much of a science and that he changed his content strategy. Pretty. Like they said, yeah, I started measuring the amount of edits and cuts in every video that I could find that had over, like if a video had over 2 million views in 24 hours, I would measure how many edits and cuts in the video and how many edits and cuts in the first 15 seconds, 30 seconds, 90 seconds of the video. And then I changed my entire editing workflow. Around. I'm like, you changed your entire editing workflow measure. I'm like, how many videos did you measure that had 2 million views in the first 24 hours. And he was like, I think I plugged uh, about 200 of them into a spreadsheet. I'm like, but then these are the same people that everyone thinks yeah. got lucky. And these are the same right. people who will and, tell and everyone that, to be to humble. Point before, that's what you're up against. You're, you're competing against for attention obsession. against that. Right. Against that. Now, yeah. here's the thing. That, that's the top tier, by the way. That's so the people right. who are the exception. The people who are the exceptions are the people who are obsessed. That's Bezos, that's Musk, that's mm -hmm. Cuban, that's Zucks, that's all the, it's the Damon John. It's these excessive, these obsessive and excessive people, right? These people who go to an extreme, which, but it's the same thing as being a casual person competing against a pro athlete. It's the same thing. If you just realize that there are pro athletes and all they do is they show up in the gym every day. And if you realize that, oh, I think I'm special. And then I walked into the gym and Kobe was there and I realized that I'm not now. If you have the humility yeah, to a appreciate, great, great analogy. yeah, if you have the humility to appreciate some of that, then you can start to get realistic about what you want, why you want, and what is attainable and reasonable and what is healthy for you. What is healthy for you is really important. Like yeah, I tell people, I was going to say a not so minor detail, make it right size in your life. And for some people, one video a week is not right size in their life today. Okay, great. You're not going to achieve your goals until three or five years from now because you have to do it differently. And that's okay. Or here's a life change you'd have to make that gets you there sooner. Are you willing to entertain that life change? And yes, no, the result is not guaranteed, but it's much more likely 
And that's the other thing. People want guarantees instead of, they, instead of increasing their odds. They yeah. refuse to do something if you cannot promise them. And if there's not a punitive punishment for you, if they don't get what they want by doing the thing that you say, instead of just acknowledging that your odds increase incrementally or proportionately if you do something that you're not already doing. And it is something that has a reason and validity around it where you can honestly say that makes sense or, oh, that tracks, or I could see why that would be that. like, okay, then let's go. Yeah. Have, you, and ever stop pretending the, have you ever read the book Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke? No, but that sounds amazing. And I it's, you'll love it. It's right in line with what you're talking about. I highly recommend it. Roberto, this was amazing. Thank you. I know people are going to love it. I know they're going to want to get more from you. Where should they go? Where can they find you? Where can they dive deeper into your world? One of the best things they could do because it will keep them from hunting through 1500 plus videos at this point is the best resource I've created is quite literally my book, Create Something Awesome, How Creators Are Profiting from the Passion of the Creator Economy. It's not just because I want you to buy my book, but it's, it's a consolidation and it makes it easier than hunting through all my videos. That being said, you can find my videos on youtube.com slash at Roberto Blake, because now we're all at whatever for our handles now. That's great. So it's youtube.com slash Roberto Blake. You can also ask me questions publicly on Twitter, Roberto Blake in Twitter. You can follow me for behind the scenes and insights at Roberto Blake in Instagram as well. And also, of course, you can feel free to work with me at awesomecreatoracademy.com. That's what they can do. And just remember that my goal is to help you understand and be a better content creator because you can grow your personal brand it can also grow and develop and add traffic and value to your business. It can grow your network and reputation by reaching more like-minded people. And I believe there's no downside to the skill stack and tech stack from making the attempt to be a content creator. At the end of the day, if it doesn't work out, great. You have a tremendous skill set that makes you worth $50,000 a year more than you were. We have a tremendous skill set that allows you to market any product, service, business, or thing for the rest of your life using online video. And if not, you then walk away with a tech stack where, oh, congratulations, you're everyone in the family's favorite videographer and photographer. So nice. Cool. Thank you. And for anyone who wants more of my stuff, you can find all these links in the description of this video because I listen to Roberto and make sure that I put them there. My newsletter for the interested.com slash subscribe. My skill sessions, joshspector.com slash sessions. I do coaching and consulting. You can learn more about that at joshspector.com slash consulting. I'm on Twitter all the time at jspector. If you would like to come on this show and ask me three questions, you can go to joshspector.com slash questions to apply. Thanks, Roberto. Thanks, everybody, for watching, listening, and subscribing to my YouTube channel. I'm way behind Roberto. I've got a lot of catching up to do. I think I'm at like 685 subscribers today, but I'm happy about that. Everyone, we'll get you to a thousand. Yeah, I'm, on, thousand. I'm, well on, I'm well on my way. So thanks, everybody. Thanks, Roberto. I will see you next time.